It's just after 7 p.m. and you're listening to Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Serena Zhao. AI seems everywhere all of a sudden. And what I was surprised to learn is that artificial intelligence may already be part of your experience at the doctor's office. With uses such as machine learning tools for reading mammograms or algorithms that can help choose medication. Tools that help physicians process more information from the patient or from the latest medical research than they could otherwise. What's on the horizon with AI and other digital technologies in medical care is explored in a new book, Future Care, Sensors, Artificial Intelligence, and the Reinvention of Medicine by Jag Singh. Future Care provides an overview of where we're at in digitizing various aspects of the healthcare system, from medical research to monitoring symptoms, diagnosis, and interventions, all the way to hospital management. It also presents a vision of what medical care may look like in the future as technologies to gather, analyze, and synthesize medical data continue to develop. These new approaches have the potential to restructure how healthcare works. Author Jag Singh is our guest on PNN tonight. Dr. Singh is a cardiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, where he was formerly the clinical director of the cardiology division. He's also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the founding director of the Resynchronization and Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics Program at the MGH Heart Center. Zag, thank you for joining us on Perpetual Motion Machine. Thank you for having me, Serena. It's a pleasure to be here. So with the coming wave of health data to process, you've described in the book some potential new roles in healthcare, uh, such as a healthcare navigator who can filter and triage high volumes of patient messages to clinicians. How do you think the increasing use of sensors and AI um, will affect the medical labor force and you know, particularly how relationships of power among staff or with staff and patients might change? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's a terrific uh, question, Serena. I, I think, you know, if I may say, as you very nicely put it, that the future of care is going to be you know, partially virtual, uh, sensor-aided, powered by predictive analytics and artificial intelligence, but will require sustainable workflows that will translate into better clinical outcomes. And interestingly enough, at every level, whether it's sensor-aided or whether it is powered by artificial intelligence, there will be some change in the dynamics of how the labor force will have to interface with the care of patients. Um, I think there will be a repurposing uh, of almost all clinicians because, you know, this uh, old adage that goes around now that the clinician who uses AI will replace the clinician who does not use AI. Uh, and I think it is going to be really important that uh, we understand that recognizing and using AI in managing our patients is going to become absolutely essential. So that's number one. Number two is, I think with sensor-based strategies, there will be large remote monitoring centers that will be responsible for looking after our patients remotely. You know, whether they're at home, whether they're in their offices, there'll be some way of continuous surveillance and continuous tracking. And to man or, you know, or woman, those uh, remote monitoring uh, centers uh, will require um, uh, repurposing of a lot of the clinicians in their current roles. As you just said, we might have more healthcare navigators or have nurses and nurse practitioners and clinicians and doctors who are now trained in a different way in interfacing with the patients out there. But the big change out here, Serena, I think is, is patients having more skin in the game themselves. 
uh, there will be more self-management strategies. So patients will be more engaged in their care because now it's sensor-based care for which they most likely will have access to the data. And I think it'll be incumbent on them to get engaged in their own care. I, I think where there may be some changes in the workforce really are in the middle manager managerial roles, in the patient service coordinator roles. There will be, unfortunately, some roles out there that could be fulfilled by chatbots and AI directly, and that may be something we need to start getting ready for. Uh, I think the bottom line is that anything that can be algor algorithmized uh, and any task that's repetitive will be restructured in some way, and we need to start thinking about that right now. Interesting. Um, I want to point out, or moving forward, because I noticed you said the word surveillance and monitoring, and I I think I want to clarify within our conversation what that means, because often we think, oh, AI and surveillance, oh, no, it's like a lot of... Um, you know, cameras looking at us from all around, which is also a thing that's happening. But um, I think medically or in, in public health terms, um, that they yeah, does have a, a different connotation, right? Absolutely, absolutely. What I meant by sensors and surveillance by sensors is basically surveillance of healthcare alerts. So for example, you know, we already have variables. Variables can track your physical activity, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your oxygen saturation. We knew that during the COVID era, um, we're in the post-COVID era, fortunately, but in the COVID era, we were tracking many of these variables using uh, variables using variables to see if patients were more prone for illness or were at some point of their illness that they required hospitalization. So when I talk about sensors and variables for monitoring, uh, it's primarily to monitor their healthcare status and generate alerts that can be actionable that can uh, you know, alert the clinician that they need to call the patient and intervene to make sure that the patient doesn't fall ill. You know, I think the whole next phase of clinical medicine is going to be forecasting and preventing disease. And that's where the surveillance component really comes in. Right. Um, you also mentioned that patients could have access to this data. Um, now, I'm sure some some of your patients are probably experts in machine learning themselves, <laughs> but for the average patient out there who might not be, you know, data analysts, um, what kind of access do you envision um, for them to, you know, engage with their own data? Sure. So, so not all data requires machine learning, right? I mean, for example, um, wellness data. So there are a lot of people these days who monitor their physical activity off their watches, their number of steps, they monitor their heart rate trends. That's, that's data that patients will have access to and already have access to. But beyond that, there are certain disease-specific data. For example, when you talk about diabetic patients, now we have continuous glucose monitoring strategies where you can apply a sensor to the skin and that can measure your glucose level continuously for 14 days. That is data that patients use to monitor their blood glucose level and appropriately adjust their diet or their lifestyle, or even use insulin or other medications that they need to use, and they can individualize their treatment strategy. So when I talk about access to data, I'm talking about single covariates or single variables that can actually influence uh, self-management at this point in time. In the future, in the future, when there's lots of data, 
from multiple sources, that's where machine learning and AI strategies will come in. But the AI and machine learning strategies will synthesize that data, will collate that data, and spit out through an algorithm the intervention that you have to do for yourself. Uh, so it's not going to be incumbent on, on patients to necessarily put all that data together, but that's something that will be taken care of and done for them to make sure that they're, you know, taking care of themselves. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you go into in the book, it sounds like a lot of the use of these future technologies rides on where this data is stored and where people can access it. And, you know, one of the things I found most cumbersome in navigating a new medical system, if I've seen a different provider, is trying to get my records connected. Um, and uh, Madison is home to one of the biggest medical record companies in the U.S. Um, so, in you know, with that in mind, are there some issues that you would think would be helpful to have the people building and maintaining EMR software consider, especially as the landscape is changing and there's going to be massive flows of data that we have previously not had to deal with? For sure. So, so I think uh, there are some easy fixes and there are some futuristic fixes that, that are, are important to um, you know, figure out. I think some of the things that you talked about, about your healthcare records from center to center not being transferred or not being collated, you know, those are interoperability issues. And many of those are actively being addressed by the regulatory bodies insisting there's some Cures Act and other acts that have actually insisted that all hospitals and organizations have to invest in ele electronic medical records having a similar strategy uh, in, in the term, in the way they're termed so that they can be, you know, easily interfaced between different organizations. So that's happening. That will happen. I think the bigger question you ask is, you know, how is this all going to evolve in the better care of patients and allow us to provide better care? So one thing I think, you know, you and I recognize, Serena, is that, you know, our current electronic medical records are are just digitized information. They break the clinic visit into a narrative of seven to 10 minutes every six months to one year, right? The, the entire personal narrative of the patient, which is more responsible for how they're going to incur disease uh, and, and respond to it, is lost in the electronic medical record because it's really based off billing codes, right? How can we transform that to look better for the future? So one of the first things I think is that generative AI, then you've heard of chat GPT, which is really kind of out there these days, uh, that generative AI will help us actually ease the clinic visit with our patients where we're not sitting on the keyboard all the time, we're actually connecting with our patients. So this whole concept of keyboard liberation is something that is gonna come, up, come across very soon. And then generative AI will allow us to have automatic synthetic notes while we're talking to our patients. And this will enable us to better connect with our patients and also allow the use of data coming into our records to be used in a more systematic way for future research purposes. But I think the biggest thing, if you had to talk to the EMR folks in Madison, I would say find a mechanism where we can add on other layers of data from wearables, sensors, you know, there's this whole dark data, right? 
Uh, so if you if you look at data as a whole, uh, Serena, there's the visible data that we see in the EMRs, and there's dark data that we don't see, which is below in the iceberg, you know, under the water out there. That includes all the proteomics, genomics, our social data, our cultural data, our environmental data. How people respond to disease is more dependent on that data. And that's something I'm hoping that our EMRs can capture in a better way, or at least layer on to our EMRs, so that we can have a better strategy of better risk prediction and better intervention. So those are things that are hard asks, but at the same time, you know, just imagine, you know, I'm a cardiologist and I see a patient, I see a patient, I look at their heart and that's it, you know, I'm done. But that's not real medicine, right? The real medicine is looking at the patient as a whole. So I think if the EMRs can construct digital dashboards that make us look at a patient as a whole, I think that's going to change the way we actually treat our patients and actually make it a much more individualized and personalized experience. Yeah, so... Looking at the patient as a whole, uh, one thing that often comes up in our current data-limited paradigm is using some demographic markers and comparing them to population-level summary statistics and whatnot to say, okay, if you have this, you know, if you're read as this particular racial background or this kind of profession or something, then you are at X amount of risk for this thing. Um, and we're finding that that may not be actually accurate, right? So um, could you tell us a little bit about um, the N of one approach that you talk about in the book um, that is made possible by, um, you know, sensor-based monitoring? Um, and, you know, maybe would it be possible to use that data to find new functional categories that are not already attached to, you know, categories that we already have come up with? That is a very deep question, and that's a lovely question, uh, Serena. So, you know, I we use these population-based studies right now um, to create data to decide how we're going to treat patients. So, for example, if you're looking at, you know, sudden cardiac death in a large population of patients, you find the answer in a small subset. And even if it's not relevant to the other subset, it generally gets dispersed at a strategy that involves treating everybody. And very often, these population-based studies don't necessarily well, let's put it this way, are not very diverse. There is a lot of inequity. Um, there are oftentimes disadvantaged uh, com- you know, parts of our society, low socioeconomic status, blacks, brown people, Asians, don't, don't necessarily constitute the demographic data set from which those population-based studies were actually performed. Even in women, for example, most of our population-based studies have less than 25 30% women, even lower than that. Right, so we're just small men, right, <laughs> medically. <laughs> and, you know, I, unfortunately, you can say that. I mean, it, it's so so we need to correct that. And, and sometimes these population-based studies, you know, assume a lot of things, and that same clinical tool may not be entirely applicable in any of these different subsets of individuals that we just talked about. And that's where the N of 1 comes in. The N of 1 is, you know, you are your best control subject. So, for example, N of 1 is if you have sensor-based strategies and you're following a patient along, you can actually determine when that patient is deviating from his or her norm or normal values. So let me give you, give you an example. So if you look at a population-based study, Serena, we call people hypertensive. 
or they say we, they're hypertensive if their blood pressure is more than 130 by 80, okay, or 140 by 90, depending on which uh, rules you're using. Now, there are many patients who are born with blood pressures of 90 by 60, and as they grow older, their blood pressure now becomes 130 by 80. They will still be called normal blood pressure because they fit in that population-based level, but within their own lives, they've actually blood pressures have actually gone higher by 30%. So they may actually be hypertensive, but by population-based levels, they're still defined in the normal range. So here, if you track individuals as an N of one and you follow them along for their heart rate or blood pressures, you can actually better understand their physiology and direct management accordingly. And there are many of these N of one kind of studies that can be done. Even, for example, you know, trying to assess and understand triggers that cause you know heart rhythm problems or heart problems or cancers. Uh, the end of one way of looking at things is oftentimes much better and more individualized and personalized. Right. That, yeah, that sounds like a great um, solution in the future. Um, so one thing that AI in particular has come up a lot um, is as a potential tool for making major medical advancements. So this is kind of back to population stuff, I guess, where you, know, you might discover a new wonder drug that could apply to a lot of different people, or maybe not. Um, but even with the existing tools we have, you know, one major through line in your book is that the right incentive structure, as you mentioned, uh, needs to be present for the system to operate effectively. Um, and a lot of the current problems that different parts of the population might experience right now isn't because some new intervention doesn't exist. It's because it does exist, but they don't have access to it, or maybe it doesn't apply to their particular physiology. Um, do you have some thoughts on how data availability or analysis capacity um, can be used to reorganize the incentive structures? Um, you know, not just just <laughs> find you know some new um, treatment, you know, the new 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 cure for something, but how can we use the um, new data technology to you know restructure how we access? Absolutely. So so you know, how do we incentivize change? Basically, yeah. Um, and I think when we talk about incentivizing change, um, we also have to understand that one of the biggest things why we're not changing is because organizations and individuals are all rooted in the status quo, right? And, and uh, if change occurs, it's going to occur from patient expectations, uh, the willingness of clinicians, but also the 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 expectations on the healthcare organizations of how they actually have to behave too. But let me take it, let me dial it back and and talk about incentivization at the provider level first, and then we'll talk about it at the patient level. At the provider level, I think it's important to recognize that most of the ways that we function these days is largely um, in a fee for service strategy or, or in a strategy that is based off incentivizations for volume of work, not the value of work, but the volume of work. So it really, it, it's, we're kind of beholden to a culture of margins where we're trying to drive more volumes of patients to see. And it, it's paradoxical, but it's almost, it, it's, it could be summarized by, by saying that the health of our healthcare organizations or the wellness of our healthcare organizations depends on the sickness of our patients. And that's a really sad thing, right? Yeah. So 
we need to change that equation. Uh, and I think a part of that is is how do we incentivize providers to not be so dependent on volume, but on value, and how they should be incentivized for synergy and working in team-based approaches to actually enhance care uh, in a more individualized way. So that's one. The second, I would say, is at the patient level, I think it's really important that patients need to have some skin in the game, right? I think healthcare is non-sustainable if patients are not looking after themselves. So if you have two diabetics and one diabetic is looking after him or herself and the other is not, the one who is not looking after him or herself, not adjusting to their diets, not you know participating in wellness activities and you know not adhering to their medications, they are more liable to fall ill and actually have higher impositions and cost uh, needs from the healthcare system because of all downstream complications related to diabetes as opposed to somebody who is not. So I think what the healthcare system and insurance companies are already doing is offering um, variables and offering strategies of incentives to patients to have some skin in the game and actually look after themselves and then adjusting their premiums in a way that they're incentivized to look after themselves based on their outcomes later on. So I'm just using diabetes as one example, but this could be for high blood pressure, this could be for high cholesterol level, adherence and engagement of patients needs to be incentivized. And this can be incentivized uh, primarily, I think, through insurance companies. Interesting. Um, looking at the within, uh, looking at the cost of the healthcare system level, I think that makes a lot of sense. I wonder, we can still, uh, taking the same example of diabetes, so let's say person A and person B are looking at the same insurance company and person A is able to make some lifestyle changes. Um, they live close to a grocery store with lots of fresh produce. They live um, walking distance from work or near a park, and they're able to log these changes and report it back to the insurance company and get their reduced premium. Person B, let's say, lives in a food desert, um, you know, is boxed in by highways and doesn't really have a lot of green space to move around in or, you know, any other things that might affect diabetes. Oh, I'm just thinking of a couple. Um, yeah. And they don't have access to some of these interventions that might help reduce their personal health care cost. Um, meanwhile, they are also accruing more costs of the whole system, which is not great for anyone else either. Um, so th so there's the, the tension between, you know, making it run smoother and then having it not be accessible to everyone. Um, I'm wondering if there's any um, intermediate solutions or ways around the access challenge that you see. No, I, I think you're, you're spot on. You know, there is this huge digital divide, right? I mean, we, we talk about digital care, uh, but at the same time, it's, um, it's the most disadvantaged who get further disadvantaged because they don't have access to all the digital tools. But at the same time, there are social determinants of health, as you just alluded to, in terms of all the barriers that they have are contributing even more uh, to them not being able to take advantage of some of the strategies that are available today. I think it's incumbent upon us uh, as healthcare providers, it's incumbent upon us as hospital systems uh, to recognize that this is an issue um, that we need to solve and provide low-cost you know, digital solutions, provide the appropriate infrastructures and access uh, to enhance care. 
You know, it's really interesting uh, that you bring this up. They say that 15, it's that all the healthcare that we provide through hospitals really amounts to only 15% of health. Most of the health is impacted by the social construct uh, and the social determinants of health and all these other economic factors that you alluded to. And I think fixing them at the same time is going to be really important. There are some measures that we can now take prospectively since this whole digitized world is really just about started. Um, and this whole sense of really engaging in digital care pathways is just about being formulated. So I think we need to be very prospective and proactive in addressing these in a forward fashion rather than just proceeding gung-ho right now and then trying to backfill these gaps. Uh, that would be like repeating history again and having all the systemic and systematic and structural racism that we've had in the past uh, and allow that to perpetuate. And I think it's so important that we think about these things prospectively uh, and, and prevent them from occurring. Yeah, so in that vein, um, yeah, lot, lots more in the book for any listeners about how sensor technology and AI can impact social determinants of health. Um, what do you see as some potential opportunities for you know, individuals or advocacy and service organizations or policymakers to you know keep an eye on this problem or this you know um, this potential gap um, widening and you know how to better serve their constituents or communities um, is to gain the benefits of more digital digitized medicine while also avoiding potential pitfalls from that. Absolutely. So, so one thing I will say, Serena, I think it's really important for the listeners to recognize there's a huge difference between being digitized and being digital. You know, digitized is what our electronic medical records are. That doesn't make it digital medicine. Uh, practicing digital medicine is a change in culture of how we actually practice medicine. We have to create the right digital care pathways. We have to ensure that those personalized care pathways are not impersonal and still have enough of the human touch integrated into the digital touch so that it feels like we're actually looking after our patients. Uh, but the whole value proposition of digital medicine is very different from the way conventional traditional medicine is provided. So that's something I think it's really important. I think the first thing that I would say is that patient expectations for uh, a better, seamless experience that allows us to provide individualized, personalized medicine uh, will change, help us change this 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 value proposition because I think it's the patients who have to, you know, it's it's their right uh, to get the best personalized care rather than having all these conventional access-related issues and then not finding their doctors or their nurses and being able to interface with them and having to wait several weeks to years before they actually have their appointment. So their expectations need to be met. So I think this is one place I'd say the patients have to be very vocal and you know state that they have certain expectations. The second thing, what you said about uh, you know uh, you know how can other people help? I think other service organizations and and policymakers, I think have to recognize that the way hospitals right now. Uh, are so worried about fiscal stability and fiscal sustainability that they're looking at their next, you know, fiscal year um, and and not looking at the long-term vision out here 
they're still so focused on volumes and, and the culture of margins and not on value-based care or shared saving strategies. And I think it's really incumbent upon us to get the service organizations and other a- agencies to kind of help organizations recognize that it's the long-term view out here that we need to start planning for and not just look from year to year out here. And the other thing I would say is it's it's really important for those organizations to bring forth the bias that exists in many of the data sets that are already there and the inequity that exists and really enforce and ensure that the data sets that we are generating for generating, creating AI algorithms uh, really need to be inclusive so that they're generalizable and especially generalizable to the most disadvantaged members of the society. All right. Yeah, that that will really be the future, future-minded care. <laughs> Great. So, uh, Jag, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Serena. Future Care is available wherever books are sold. And more information about um, Dr. Singh's research is available at jagsingmd.com. Perpetual Notion Machine will be back next Thursday at 7 p.m. here on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WORT Madison. My name is Sarita Zhao. Thank you for listening. Up next is Radio Literature. <laughs>